Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. You're listening to the Sham Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Hi, welcome back to the 411 Report. I'm Elizabeth, and I have a story coming from Fox News this morning, very disturbing says uh, Chicago police are searching for five or six men or boys, I guess older older boys, but maybe not 18, suspected of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old girl live on Facebook. Talk about despicable. But I'll tell you the next thing that's really despicable about this is 40 people viewed it on Facebook while it was happening, and none of them reported it to the police. None. Unbelievable. The police superintendent, Eddie Johnson, was leaving a station in Lawndale neighborhood of Chicago's west side late Monday afternoon when a woman approached him with photographs of her daughter being sexually assaulted on Facebook. Can you imagine, as a parent, can you imagine? He said that Johnson immediately ordered an investigation and the department contacted Facebook to take down the video, which it did. Well, I hope, I really passionately hope that they find each and every one of them and they prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law, send them to prison so they could be violated the same way they violated this girl. That's just personally how I feel about it. How do you feel about it? <laughs> A comment below. Feel free. Until uh, next time, thanks for tuning in. The views and opinions of the nation talk are not necessarily views or talk to you. Jam Radio Productions, Sony.com, and its sponsors. This is your Sunday evening forum, Nation Talk.
Online Biblical Fast Program that deals with issues concerning you from the studios of Savannah, Georgia. Check this out. 
another deep fryer. And I'm not sure what this doohickey is. Yeah, most businesses weren't ready for a storm like that, you know. But our work's really piling up here at Roberts and Sons Salvage. What will become of your business after a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency. And 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. The views and opinions of Nation Talk are not necessarily the views of TalkShoe, Jam Radio Productions, Sodahead.com and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. Her face, she was so scared. 
her pushing her head and doing everything. We are choosing not to show images of the video, but Diavion's mother shared them with Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson during a chance encounter outside the 10th District Police Station as she was going in to ask police to file a missing persons report. The superintendent personally escorted her in to make sure it was handled immediately. Now I feel a little bit better knowing that, you know, they're going to try to find her. Couldn't help but notice your reaction when she started showing in, and then you went right in there. Why did you want to take a personal stand on this? Because I'm a, I'm a father with two daughters, and, and I could see the pain in her face, you know, and I want her to know that CPD is here to help you. Johnson says he's also very disturbed that at one point at least 36 people were watching the video live, but no one alerted police. There were so many people that saw it and didn't pick up the phone and dial 911. That's, that's just not right. And what do you want to say to these young men or who you see in the video? That if, if she's still with you guys, just let her come home. That's all. I just want her home to make sure everything is okay with her. That's all I want is her to come back home. I just spoke with D'Avion's mother a short time ago. She says Chicago police are still working to locate her daughter. If you have any information on her whereabouts, you are asked to call police. Robin Erica Facebook did take down that video. Does she know who uh, is in the video? Does she, she recognize anybody? No, she didn't recognize anyone, but it was brought to her attention for people in the neighborhood. So they believe that people in the neighborhood do know who these young men are, and they're hoping that they'll come forward and help police so they can mm -hmm. find her. And this mother, she's never had her daughter go missing before. She says her daughter is an honor roll student, A student, and, you know, this is, she just wants to make sure she's okay. And she said if her daughter is watching, she wants to know she's not mad at you. Come home. She's okay. She just wants to know you're safe. Okay. Mike, thank you. But first, I'm... It is despicable. Welcome back to the 411 Report. I'm Elizabeth, and I have a story coming from Fox News this morning, very disturbing. It says uh, Chicago police are searching for five or six men or boys, I guess older, older boys, but maybe not 18, suspected of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old girl live on Facebook. Talk about despicable. But I'll tell you the next thing that's really despicable about this is 40 people viewed it on Facebook while it was happening, and none of them reported it to the police. None. Unbelievable. The police superintendent, Eddie Johnson, was leaving a station in Lawndale neighborhood of Chicago's west side late Monday afternoon when a woman approached him with photographs of her daughter being sexually assaulted on Facebook. Can you? Now that's the disgusting part. That's the part that ticked me off. Why in the Nobody called the police. Why? Imagine, as a parent, can you imagine? He said that Johnson immediately ordered an investigation and the department contacted Facebook to take down the video, which it did. Well, I hope, 
I really passionately hope that they find each and every one of them and they prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. Send them to prison so they could be violated the same way they violated this girl. Exactly. That's how I feel. They, I say, they should get a teeth for their own medicine. They should for doing what they did. And these guys know it was not right. It was not right to what they did. And I hope they put them under the jail. That's just personally how I feel about it. How do you feel about it? Yeah, they took it down. Well, they 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 took the um they took the the, the video down on um on Facebook. I'm glad they did because really nobody, and I mean nobody, needs to see that. Hello, guest three. How are you? Welcome to the program. All right, let's go live to Sky News to Sky News Live on the London Terror. No? No, I won't be able to go to that. My goodness. They just freeze me out. It fills me out. Uh, do they have it here? Nope. But anyway, um, I'd like to get your thoughts about this. What do you think these guys should, once these guys are put in jail, do they need to punish these guys for raping this for raping this 15-year-old girl? And I mean, punish them to the max, to the maximum. Again, 15-year-old girl Gang rape to Chicago. They're pouring things on her head. It's it's terrible. It's it's horrible. And the mom actually seen this disturbing live video of her missing daughter. I can't believe it. I really. I'm still trying to figure out what was the what what was the whole reason behind of violating 
and humiliating this girl. This is not right. Okay. Mercy. Let's go. Let's go to something else. The London terror attack. Um. That went on during the weekend. London. That was going on. Uh, I think they did catch the guy. Here's, here's, well, they didn't, they won't let me kill that one, all right? For some reason, they will not, they got it up on YouTube, but they won't let me, they won't, they won't let you see it. But anyway, the London attack, and it's kind of strange because and the authority, London authorities are calling this a, a terrorist attack. Um, the story, from what I heard, it was a guy who came, who was on the West, who was on, was near the parliament was on the bridge and actually this is the when when west west westminster London bridge this happened uh 22nd just a few days ago um just a few days ago and Ran, mow over, ran some people over, then turn around and stab a police, and stab a police officer, injuring a lot of people. Uh, they still won't let me get in. They still won't let me. They still won't let me show it. Um. It's been restricted, 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 restricted. Well, anyway, I, I could do with that. Oh, I could remove the. Okay. Um. That's one of the things that's been going on, um, in the UK shooting. That I still don't understand the whole idea. Of what they were doing, and they they called it a terrorist attack. Um, or was it a terrorist attack? Another story. Is Judge Gorsuch hearing now? 
Right now, I think, <laughs> I think, uh, this guy seems like it's going to is having trouble trying to get, trying to get, um, trying to get, um, uh, uh, approved. Now, Schumer, to its majority, Chuck Schumer, says he will not vote to confirm Neil Gorsuch to become. Here's his reason why. After careful deliberation, I have concluded that I cannot support Judge Neil Gorsuch's nomination to the Supreme Court. His nomination will have a cloture vote. He will have to earn 60 votes for confirmation. My vote will be no, and I urge my colleagues to do the same. To my Republican friends who think that if Judge Gorsuch fails to reach 60 votes, we ought to change the rules, I say if this nominee cannot earn 60 votes, a bar met by each of President Obama's nominees and George Bush's last two nominees, the answer isn't to change the rules. It's to change the nominee. (laughs) This morning, I'd like to lay out the reasons why I'll be voting no on this nomination. First, Judge Gorsuch was unable to sufficiently convince me that he'd be an independent check on a president who has shown almost no restraint from executive overreach. Second, he was unable to convince me that he would be a mainstream justice who could rule free from the biases of politics and ideology. His career and judicial record suggest not a neutral legal mind, but someone with a deep-seated conservative ideology. He was groomed by the Federalist Society and has not shown one inch of difference between his views and theirs. And finally, he is someone who almost instinctively favors the powerful over the weak, corporations over working Americans. There could not be a worse time for someone with those instincts. Judge Gorsuch's opportunity to disabuse us of all these objections was in the hearing process. But he declined to answer question after question after question with any substance. Absent the real description of judicial philosophy, all we have to judge the judge on is his record. All right. Now, we come back. We're going to hear the exchange between Al Franken and Judge Gorsuch. See what you think. Should he be confirmed? Is he right? Is he a, a is he the type of judge that we really need in? with the Supreme Court. 
Give us a call, 1724-444-7444. Call it the number, 555-19-POUND, 1724-444-7444. Call it the number, 555-19-POUND. This is Nation Talk, and we will return. Senator. Uh, 
You know, I wanted to get to some questions, but first I want to talk about uh, Trans Am trucking because uh, Senator Durbin brought it up and Senator Lee brought it up. And I, I want to just go through the facts real quickly because I'm, I understand the reasoning behind your dissent, but I'm actually kind of puzzled by it as well. Uh, okay, so uh, Alphonse Madden is a truck driver. He's uh, made a stop off the interstate at 11 p.m. He comes back on, or he's about to come back on, notices his brakes are frozen on his trailer. Okay, so he decides, I'm not going to go on. It's dangerous to go with, with frozen brakes on the interstate, uh, frozen brakes on my long trailer. He's in the cab, and he calls in uh, for blue on the side calls in for a repair. Uh, gets to the dispatcher. Dispatcher says, "Well, uh, you know, wait, hang on there, we'll, we'll wait for." It. Okay, uh, a couple hours goes by. The, the the heater is not working in his cab. It's 14 below zero. 14 below zero. He calls in and he says, "My feet, I can't feel." Them. I can't feel my feet, my torso. I'm beginning not to be able to feel my torso. And they say, hang on, hang on, wait for us. Okay, now he actually falls asleep. And at 1.18 a.m., his cousin, I think, cousin calls him and wakes him up. And his cousin says that he is slurring his speech, and he doesn't make much sense. Now, Mayo Clinic in Minnesota says that is uh, uh, hypothermia. And he had fallen asleep. If you fall asleep waiting on 14 below zero weather, you can freeze to death. You can die. He calls him back, and his supervisor says, wait. you got to wait. So he has a couple of choices here. Wait or take the trailer out with the frozen brakes onto the interstate. Now, when those brakes are locked and you're pulling that load on a trailer with his brakes locked, you can go maybe, what, 10, 15 miles an hour? Now, what's that like on an interstate? Say you're going 75 miles an hour. Someone's going 75 miles an hour. They come over a hill and slam into that trailer. Also, he's got hypothermia. He's a little woozy. Probably figures that's not too safe. I don't think you'd want to be on the road with him, would you, Judge? Senator, um... Uh, you would? Uh, or not? I, it's, a, it's a really easy yes or no. Would you like to be on the road with him? Want to be on the road with him? Yeah. Uh, with the hitched trailer or the unhitched trailer, Senator? Well, either... But especially with the hitched trailer, with the locked brakes. No, I, I don't think that. Okay, was I thought option. that was. I, I wouldn't yeah. want to be there either. Yeah. And An so what he trailer. does is he unhitches it right. and goes off in the cab. And then I believe he comes back 15 minutes later. And he comes back after he gets warm, so that he can be there when it gets repaired. Right. Okay. Gets fired. He gets fired. And the rest of the judges all go, that's ridiculous. He shouldn't, you can't fire a guy for doing that. It was, it was, there were two safety issues here. One, the possibility of freezing to death. 
or driving with that rig in a very, very undangerous, very dangerous way. Which would you have chosen? Which would you have done? Oh, Senator, I don't know what I would have done if I were in his shoes, and I don't blame him at all for a moment for doing what he did do. Um, but, I, well, I empathize but, with him entirely. Okay, just you. We've been talking about this case. Don't you? You, know, you haven't decided what you would have done. You haven't thought about for a second oh, what you would have done in Senator, this case. I, I thought a lot about this case. And I, what would you have done? I totally empathize. I'm asking you a question. Please answer a question, Senator. I don't know. I wasn't in the man's shoes, but I understand you why. You don't he know didn't. what you would have done. Okay, I, I tell you what I would have done. I would have done exactly what he did. Yeah, I understand. And I think everybody here would have done exactly what he did. And I think that's an easy answer. Frankly, I don't know why he had difficulty answering that. Okay, so you decide to write a thing in dissent. If you read your dissent, you don't say it was like sub-zero. You say it was cold. The facts that you describe in your dissent are very minimal. But here's the, here's the law that... And you go to the language of the law, and you talk about that. I go to the law. A person may not discharge an employee who refuses to operate a vehicle because the employee has reasonable apprehension of serious injury to the employee or the public because of the vehicle's hazardous safety or security condition. That's the law. And you decided that they had the right to fire him even though this law says you may not discharge an employee who refuses to operate a vehicle because he did operate the vehicle. Is that right? That's your that's how you decided, right? That's the gist of it. Well no, is that how you decided? That's what you decided. Senator, right? I, I, there are a lot of more words and opinions, both in, in the majority by my colleagues and in dissent, but that I I'm happy to agree with you, that's the gist of it. Right. Well that's what you've said. And I look, I'm not a lawyer, but I've been on this committee for about eight years. And I've paid some attention. So I know that what you're talking about here is the plain meaning rule. Here's what the rule means. When the plain meaning of a statute is clear on its face, when its meaning is obvious, courts have no business looking beyond the meaning the statute's purpose. And that's what you used, right? That's what was argued to us by both sides, Senator. But that's what you that's what you used. Yeah. The, both sides right. argued okay. that the plain meeting supported yeah. their and, and, and you used it to come to your conclusion. But both but the plain meaning rule has an exception. When using the plain meaning rule would create an absurd result. Courts should depart from the plain meaning. It is absurd to say this company is in its rights to fire him because he made the choice of possibly dying from freezing to death or causing other people to die, possibly, by driving an unsafe vehicle. That's absurd. Now, I had a career in identifying absurdity. 
and I know it when I see it. And it makes me, you know, the, it makes me question your judgment. You stopped by my office a few weeks ago. I asked you about Merrick Garland. I had read somewhere that, you, that after you accepted the nomination, it's been talked about one of the first calls you, calls you placed was to uh, just, uh, Chief Judge Garland. And you said to me, I think the world of Merrick Garland. And I asked you a couple times if you were bothered by the way the Senate treated Merrick Garland, who you clearly have a great deal of respect for. You said something to the effect of, Senator, I try to stay away from politics. Now, you've been on the bench for 10 years, so that sounded fair to me, and I decided to leave well enough alone. And I moved on to another topic. But your relationship with politics came up again yesterday. Uh, my good colleague, Senator Lee, lamented the extent to which the confirmation process has become political and suggested that you and other nominees are not equipped to navigate that process because confirmation politics are, in his words, quote, still a little foreign to you, are still quite unfamiliar to you. But it turns out that's not really entirely accurate. After you were nominated, this committee made a formal request for documents relating to your previous nomination and to your time at the Department of Justice. This is standard procedure. Those documents include emails back and forth between former Bush administration officials and you in 2004, back before you joined that administration, and the Neil Gorsuch. And those emails seems to be very, very familiar with politics. The Neil Gorsuch in those emails is looking for a job. Here's a message you sent to Matt Schlapp, President Bush's political director. This was in November 2004, just after President Bush won the election. Quote, I spent some time in Ohio working on the election. This is you. What a magnificent result for the country. For me personally, the experience was invigorating and a great deal of fun. Now, that doesn't sound like someone who steers clear of politics to me. You went on to write, quote, while I've spent considerable time trying to help the cause on a volunteer basis in various roles, I concluded that I'd really like to be a full-time full, uh, full -time member of the team. You attach your resume, which describes in detail your work and support political campaigns and candidates. Basically, you had worked on Republican political campaigns since 1976. Uh, you've worked for Reagan. Bush one, Bush two. Uh, you, you were cited for distinguished service to the United States Senate for work in support of President Bush's judicial nominees by the Senate Republican Conference, which suggests that even the political aspects of confirming judicial nominees is something that you are not unfamiliar with. Now, when we met earlier, I asked you what you thought of the way Senator, Senate Republicans treated Merrick Garland, and rather than answer the question, you, you replied, I try to avoid politics. But here you are in 2004, pledging your allegiance to the cause and shopping around a resume touting your work on political campaigns dating back to 1976. These messages establish that for a good deal of your prior career, you didn't avoid politics, quite the contrary, 
You were very politically active. So in light of that, I'd like to ask my question again. Do you think Merrick Garland was treated fairly by the United States Senate? Senator, a couple of things in response to that, if I might. Going back, uh, the absurdity doctrine argument was never presented to the court. And it usually applies in cases where there's a Scrivener's error, not when we just disagree with the policy of the statute. So I appreciate the opportunity to respond there. When there is a Scrivener there. Scrivener's error. 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 Okay, yeah. error. Um, not when we just disagree with the policy. Uh, with respect to... Well, if I read my statutory interpretation from, uh, let's see, this is from... The uh, Notre Dame Law School, National Institute for Trial Advocacy. This is a pretty well-known exception oh, yeah. to the plain meaning rule, and I think you can apply it without it. I mean, don't you think it's absurd that this man was put, given that choice and then fired for it? Don't you think that was absurd? Sir, my heart goes out there. Okay, never mind. That, my heart goes out. That, it's just, it's just not my job to write that. How do you think Merrick Garland was treated by the Republicans? Senator, since I became a judge 10 years ago, I have a canon of ethics that precludes me from getting involved in any way, shape, or form in politics. There's right. a reason why judges don't clap at the State of the Union and why I can't even attend a political caucus in my home state to register a vote in the equivalent of a primary. Okay, but I don't think that this is a is you have to state your political views. That's not what this is about. How a Supreme Court justice who was nominated by the President of the United States this is like in the Constitution. I think you're allowed to talk about what happened to the last guy who was nominated in your position. You think he's fishing at something? <laughs> You're allowed to say something without being about getting involved in politics. You can express an opinion on this. Senator, I appreciate the invitation, but I know the other side has their views of this, and you your side has your views of it. That by definition is politics. Okay. And and, and Senator judges have to stay outside of politics. I think the world of Merrick Garland. I think he's an outstanding judge. Okay, I understand. I've told you what I think. I understand. Is. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but, you know, we have time. Uh, I think it's really important for us to understand how your political work and your political views might inform the views of the law. And I know this, your I, I don't hold it against you that you did political work. Most, uh, most people did. 1976, I was walking the district with my mom. Yeah. When now I for state house. Looking again at the emails, five or so months after your message to Mr. Schlapp, you emailed Ken Melman. Mr. Melman was your law school roommate, and at the time you emailed him, he was chairman of the Republican National Committee. You just interviewed for a job at the Department of Justice, and you wanted him to put in a good word, so he did. Mr. Mel Melman emailed the White House, and he wrote, Neil is a wonderful guy, was my law school roommate, did 72 hour, the 72-hour effort in Ohio for us, and was part of Lawyers for Bush. Mr. Melman wrote, quote, he is a true loyalist. Now, again, being politically active or a loyal Republican are not disqualifying characteristics for a Supreme Court nominee, not in my book anyway. But let's think back to the 2004 election. Let's look at Ohio, where you volunteered. Ohio is one of 11 states in 2004 
where Republicans working to support the reelection campaign also work to put anti-gay marriage amendments on the ballot. These state constitutional amendments passed, all 11 of them. The text varied state by state, but generally the amendments define marriage as being between a man and a woman. The amendments sent a clear message to lesbian and gay couples that their unions were not equal in the eyes of the law. Now, you are a campaign worker in Ohio. You remember the group Lawyers for Bush Cheney. As a lawyer and as a student of the Constitution, how did you feel about the right to marry being put to a popular vote? Senator, um, I don't recall any involvement in that issue during that campaign. I, I remember going to Ohio. Were you aware of that issue at all? Oh, certainly I was aware of it. And how did you feel about it? Senator, my personal views, any revelation of my personal views about this matter would indicate to people how I might rule as a judge, mistakenly, but it might. And I have to be concerned about that. Um, these discriminatory amendments were part of a deliberal, uh, deliberative uh, effort to drive up the turnout, and we know that because uh, we know that because your friend Ken Melman said so. Mr. Melman was interviewed by The Atlantic in 2010 and said that the Bush campaign had, quote, been working with the Republicans to make sure that anti-gay initiatives and referenda would appear on November ballots in 2004 and 2006 to help Republicans. Now, to be clear, there's nothing to suggest that you were involved in crafting that strategy, but at the time, this tactic received a lot of attention including in Ohio, where you worked on the campaign, has a profound impact on people's lives. But a lot has changed. Since 2004, Mr. Melman announced publicly that he is gay for one. He also voiced regret about what happened. He apologized. He said, at a personal level, I wish I had spoken out against the effort. As I've been involved in the fight for marriage equality, one of the things I've learned is how many people were harmed by the campaigns in which I was involved. I apologize to them and tell them I'm sorry. That's a brave thing to say. It's hard to admit regret. Mr. Melman had a personal connection to the issue, to be sure, but our country has come a long way in a relatively short amount of time. A lot of folks have changed their view about marriage equalities. Republicans and Democrats alike. In the meantime, Supreme Court has settled this issue. Marriage equality is now the law of the land, so you shouldn't have any problem answering this question. How have your views of marriage equality changed, if at all, since the 2004 election? Senator, my personal views. If I were to begin speaking about my personal views on this subject, which every American has views on, would send a misleading signal the American people that my first settled law is absolutely settled law. There's ongoing litigation about its impact and its application right now. And I cannot begin to share my personal views without suggesting mistakenly to folks. Okay, people. can I move on to something else? Well, I, might Thank you. I understand. You've given a version of this answer before, so I understand. I understand. I'd like to return to something I raised in my opening statement, and that's your view of administrative law. Standing before conservative activists gathered at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, President Trump's chief strategist, Steve Bannon, and his White House chief of staff, Reince Priebus, outlined the president's agenda. Two topics were featured prominently, deregulation and your nomination. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence. Reince Priebus started by explaining why nominating you was so important for the president to do right out of the gate. He said, referring to your nomination 
quote, number one, we're not talking about a change over a four-year period. We're talking about a change of potentially 40 years of law, number one. That's change of potentially 40 years of law. Change the law. You and your colleagues here have said the job of a judge is to follow the law. Even if he dislikes the results, you said that. Not change the law or change 40 years of the law. But that's what Rice Priebus said this is about. When the White House Chief of Staff is talking to his friends at CPAC, he says that Justice's job, that your job is to change 40 years of law. Yet my colleagues and you say it's to follow the laws as written. Well, it can't be both. So which is it? Senator, it's to be a judge, to be fair, to follow the law, to apply it to the facts and circumstances of each case, and to live out my judicial oath on whichever court I serve on, whether it's the 10th Circuit, where I've served for the last 10 years. Okay. And where my opinions have been unanimous. 97% of the time, Senator. I've been I, I understand. And, and again, you've given uh, many times this that answer, so you'll <laughs> indulge me. Uh, Mr. Priebus wanted to say your nomination was central to President Trump fulfilling his policy objectives. Quote, Neil Gorsuch represents a type of judge as the vision of Donald Trump, and it, referring to your nomination, fulfills the promise that he made to all of you speaking to the conservative activists gathered at CPAC. What do you think that Mr. Priebus was talking about? Was he suggesting that if confirmed, you would be positioned to shape the court's decisions for the next 40 years? Or was he suggesting you could reach back 40 years? Roe v. Wade turned 44 this year, and the president has promised to nominate judges who would overturn Roe. Chevron is 33 years old. I think this is a legitimate question. Was Mr. Priebus suggesting that you go back and change 40 years or upset a law or have an effect on the law moving forward? Respectfully, Senator, Mr. Priebus doesn't speak for me, and I don't speak for him. I don't appreciate it how pe when people characterize me, as I'm sure you don't appreciate it when people characterize you. I like to speak for myself. I am a judge. I am my own man. Okay, I just want to just, you know, we've had some talk about this. I don't think we're crazy <laughs> to think that the administration and Ryan's previous, I don't think he was lying. And it doesn't, doesn't, are you comfortable with your nomination being described in such transactional terms? Senator, there's a lot about this process I'm uncomfortable with, a lot. But I'm not God. No one asked me to fix it. I'm here as a witness trying to faithfully answer your questions as best I can, consistent with the constraints I have as a sitting judge, here to answer questions about my qualifications and my record. I got it. Um, 
Well, I find it unsettling that the, that the administration is talking about, the chief staff is talking about the Supreme Court that way. But I want to get back to the panel at CPAC. After Mr. Priebus discussed your nomination, Steve Bannon talked about the president's agenda. He described three priorities, and one of them was, quote, the deconstruction of the administrative state. Now, here's what Mr. Bannon meant by that. He said that regulation was a problem from his perspective. Quote, every business leader we've had in is saying not just taxes, but it is also regulation. He said that if you look at the president's appointees, quote, they were selected for a reason, and that is deconstruction. The way the progressive left runs is if they can't get it passed, they're just going to put in some sort of regulation in an agency. That's all going to be gonna, it's all gonna be deconstructed. Taking Steve Bannon at his word, do you think only cabinet appointees were selected to bring about this deconstruction? Or do you think the White House also sees a role here for its judicial nominees? Senator, respectfully, I believe that's a question best directed to Mr. Bannon. He's not here. I'm just quoting him, that's all. I think the White House does see judges as a part of this deconstruction. I think that they're seeing your nomination as an important step toward achieving this goal. You've shown a willingness to disregard agencies' interpretations of statutes. You did that in Trans Am Trucking with the Department of Labor Regulation, for example. Uh, you've done it in other cases as well. And in August, you wrote that concurrence to your own unanimous opinion in which you describe Chevron, the Supreme Court's landmark administration, says, quote, permitting executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power. You wrote, quote, maybe the time has come to face the behemoth. Now, generally speaking, as we've discussed, Chevron provides the courts uh, should defer to an agency's interpretation of the federal laws that is tasked that it is tasked with administering. When Congress passes laws that require agencies to implement them, say by issuing safety standards for children's toys or rules that ensure that pharmaceuticals or medicines are safe, those agencies turn to experts to develop those policies. Experts like scientists at the FDA, for example. I think that's a good thing. We want experts doing the work. What we senators don't want to be doing is deciding how much lead can be in your water or what the distance in baby in the slats are in a baby's crib. I don't trust Senator Coons to do that. Chevron provides that when agencies do that, courts should be wary of stepping in to overrule them without a good reason. This is Scalia's agrees with Chevron. But I'm concerned that this administration sees common sense, common sense health and safety rules as a burden on big business. Yeah, so you have it. <laughs> and it's and this going to continue. This whole nominee uh, confirmation here is going to continue. Right at the top, almost at the top of the hour, this is Nation Talk on Talk Show and Jam Radio.
You're listening to the Sham Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. The views and opinions of Nation Talk are not necessarily the views of Talk Show, the Jam Radio Production, SonyHead.com, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. So what would be really good 
with no Democrat support, if the Democrats, when it explodes, which it will soon, if they got together with us and got a real health care bill, I'd be totally open to it, and I think that's going to happen. I think the losers are Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, because now they own Obamacare. They own it, 100% own it. And this is not a Republican health care. This is not anything but a Democrat health care. And they have Obamacare for a little while longer until it ceases to exist, which it will at some point in the near future. And just remember, this is not our bill. This is their bill. Now, when they all become civilized and get together and try and work out a great health care bill for the people of this country, we're open to it. We're totally open to it. I want to thank the Republican Party. I want to thank Paul Ryan. He worked very, very hard. I will tell you that. He worked very, very hard. Uh, Tom Price and Mike Pence, who's right here, our vice president, our great vice president. Uh, everybody worked hard. I worked as a team player and would have loved to have seen it passed. But again, uh, I think you know I was very clear because I think there wasn't a speech I made or very few where I didn't mention that Perhaps the best thing that could happen is exactly what happened today, because we'll end up with a truly great health care bill in the future after this mess known as Obamacare explodes. So I want to thank everybody for being here. Uh, it will go very smoothly, I really believe. I think this is something that certainly was an interesting period of time. We all learned a lot. We learned a lot about loyalty. We learned a lot about uh, the vote-getting process. We learned a lot about some very arcane rules in, obviously, both the Senate and in the House. So it's been, certainly for me, it's been a very interesting experience. But in the end, I think it's going to be an experience that leads to an even better health care plan. So thank you all very much, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Is now your intention to go for tax reform, or what's next on your... We'll probably be going right now for tax reform which we could have done earlier, but this really would have worked out better if we could have had some Democrat support. Remember this, we had no Democrat support, so now we're going to go for the tax reform, which I've always liked. You're confident in Speaker Ryan's leadership and his ability to get things done. Yes, I am. I like Speaker Ryan. He worked very, very hard. A lot of different groups. He's got a lot of factions, and there's been a long history of liking and disliking, even within the Republican Party, long before I got here. But I've had a great relationship with the Republican Party. It seems that both sides like Trump, and that's good. And you see that, I guess, more clearly than anybody. But we've had a, a I'm not going to speak badly about anybody within the party, but certainly there's a big history. I, I think Paul really worked hard. And I would say that we will probably start going very, very strongly for the big tax cuts and tax reform, that'll be next. Well, it's going to happen. There's not much you can do about it. Uh, it's going to, bad things are going to happen to Obamacare. There's not much you can do to help it. Uh, I've been saying that for a year and a half. I said, look, eventually it's not sustainable. The insurance companies are leaving, you know that. They're leaving one by one as quick as you can leave. and. Uh, you have states, in some cases, soon will not be covered. So there's no way out of that. But the one thing that was happening, as we got closer and closer, everybody was talking about how wonderful it was, and now it will go back to real life. People will see how bad it is, and it's getting much worse. You know, I said the other day when 
President Obama left, uh, 17, he knew he wasn't going to be here. 17 is going to be a very, very bad year for Obamacare. Very, very bad. You're going to have explosive premium increases. And your deductibles are so high, people don't even get to use it. So they'll go with that for a little while. And I honestly believe, I know some of the Democrats, and they're good people. I honestly believe the Democrats will come to us and say, look, let's get together and get a great health care bill or plan that's really great for the people of our country. And I think that's going to happen. You could have passed the bill in the House without any Democratic support. Why do you think you weren't able to craft the deal among the Republican Party? Well, we were very close. We were just probably anywhere from 10 to 15 votes short. Could have even been closer than that. You'll never know because you never know how they vote. But in the end, I think we would have been 10 votes, maybe closer. And but it's very hard to get almost 100 percent. You know, you're talking about a very, very uh, large number of votes among any group. And we were very close to doing it. But when you get no votes from the other side, meaning the Democrats, it's really a difficult situation. No, I think we have to let Obamacare go its way for a little while, and we'll see how things go. I'd love to see it do well, but it can't. I mean, it can't. It's not a question of, gee, I hope it does well. I would love it to do well. I want great health care for the people of the station. But it can't do well. It's imploding, and soon will explode. And it's not going to be pretty. So the Democrats don't want to see that. So they're going to reach out when they're ready. And whenever they're ready, we're ready. They're friends of mine. I'm disappointed because we could have had it. Uh, so I'm disappointed. I'm a little surprised, to be honest with you. Uh, we really had it. It was pretty much there, within grasp. But I'll tell you what's going to come out of it is a better bill. I really believe a better bill. Because there were things in this bill I didn't particularly like. And I think it's a better bill. You know, both parties can get together and do real health care. That's the best thing. Obamacare was rammed down everyone's throat, 100 percent Democrat. And I think having bipartisan would be a big, big improvement. So, uh, no, I, I think that this is going to end up being a very good thing. Uh, I'm disappointed, but they're friends of mine. And, and, you know, they got on. It was a very hard time for them uh, and a very hard vote. Okay, that was the president's um, view on it. Now, the Democrats, this is the Democrats' response when GOP pulled the health care bill. Good afternoon. I'm very proud to be here with the House Democratic leadership. The unity of our House Democratic members was a very important message to the country uh, that we are very proud of the Affordable Care Act. Yesterday, as you know, was the seven-year anniversary of the president signing the bill, and the American people expressed their support for it. That message became very clear uh, to our colleagues uh, on the Republican side of the aisle. Today is a great day for our country. It's a victory. What happened on the floor is a victory for the American people, for our seniors, for people with disabilities, for our children, for our veterans. The, uh, also, it's not just about the 24 million people who now won't have the off of uh, uh, health insurance. It's about the 155 million people who receive their health benefits uh, in the workplace who will not be assaulted by some of the provisions that the Republicans put in the bill. 
especially last night when they removed the essential benefits uh, package. Uh, so again, this is pretty, it's pretty exciting for us. Yesterday, our anniversary, today a victory for the Affordable Care Act, more importantly for the American people. Tomorrow is the 50, 51st anniversary of, President, of uh, Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. saying in a speech that Mr. Cl Mr. Clyburn uh, quotes often to us, that of all of the forms of inequality, inequality in health care is probably the most inhumane and can sometimes lead to death. Uh, that was the spirit in which we came into this uh, debate, uh, honoring the vows of our founders of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a healthy life, the liberty to pursue our happiness. So it's about our country it's a, and, our, and the vision of our founders. It's about our faith, and it's about uh, the unity of the Democrats united by our values. Okay. Chuck Schumer attacks Donald Trump after health care health care health care fail. Well, listen uh, to the uh, shout out you got from the president, his reaction to having uh, the Republicans pull this health care bill. Listen to this. I think the losers are Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer because now they own Obamacare. They own it, 100% own it. And this is not a Republican health care. This is not anything but a Democrat health care. And they have Obamacare for a little while longer until it ceases to exist, which it will at some point in the near future. And just remember, this is not our bill. This is their bill. Okay, Senator, your reaction? Well, it's a tall tale, another one by uh, President Trump. They never reached out to us. They never talked to us. They never said, how can we work together to make it better? The failure is, of course, completely among uh, the Republicans, President Trump and the Congress. They weren't even trying to get Democrats involved. And now it's about time for the president to lead, not to name call, not to blame, but to lead, to simply say people are going to suffer and someone's to blame. That makes no sense at all. If you're a real president, you care about people suffering. And we're ready to work with the president. Let take repeal off the table. Let him and uh, Speaker Ryan, Mitch McConnell say we're not repealing, and we'll work with improving Obamacare. Uh, we'll work with them on improving Obamacare. But in the meantime, for the president to do things to make Obamacare worse and have millions of people suffer, to make sure it doesn't work when CBO says it is working, he's wrong about that, that's not being a president. Listen to how the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, reacted. Listen to this. Yeah, I think um, we were probably doing the Democrats a favor. I think we were doing the architects of Obama a favor by passing this law before it gets even worse. Well, I guess that favor is not going to be given to them, and it's going to get worse. And so I don't think the architects of Obamacare, I'm sure they may be pleased right now, but when they see how bad this thing gets, based on all the projections we're being told by, by the plans that are participating in Obamacare, I don't think they're going to like that either. All right, go ahead and react uh, to the speaker. Well, again, Obamacare is working for millions of people. That's why there was such an outcry when they decided to repeal it. Can it be improved some? Of course. We've always said that. 
And once the Republicans take repeal off the table, we're willing to work with them to improve it. But it's far, far better having it than not having it. 20 million people covered, pre-existing conditions taken care of. College kids who graduate from college can get on their health care plan. Women's health care taken care of. Senior citizens getting reasonable cost health care, all of which would have been undone by Trump care. And that's why the public was on our side. Last polls I sure I saw 57% against Trump care, rather uh, keeping and improving uh, ACA. So we're willing to work with them, but they got to take repeal off the table. You know, it was very easy for seven years uh, for them to decry this. But I will say this: you know, there were two problems, two reasons this failed uh, from uh, that President Trump failed. One is incompetence. I've never seen such incompetence. They put together a bill that doesn't have the support of so many of their own party. Nobody, hardly anyone on the outside opposed it. AARP uh, supported it. AARP against it. AMA against it. Hospitals against it. Nurses against it. And second, you can't, and this is a lesson for them for the future, you cannot govern from the hard right. This bill, the only people who really benefited were the very, very wealthy people so above two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Who do you blame for their failure? Pardon? Who do you blame for their failure? I'd like you to name names. Well, I mean, the bottom line is President Trump proved to be incompetent. Uh, there was no art of a deal here. Even his uh, great technique, I'll threaten them, I'll pull out, and then they'll come back to me, didn't work. Uh, Leader Ryan, I, I like him a great deal. He's a good man, but I don't understand how you can put a bill on the floor before so many of your members uh, have signed off on it and uh, don't like it. Uh, so there's a lot of blame all on the Republican side to go around. If Republicans can't come together and agree on a new health care bill to repeal and replace Obamacare, what, if anything, are you, the Democratic leader in the Senate, going to do to reach out to Republicans and try to work with them on a bipartisan basis to find some solutions to fixing Obamacare? That's just what we want to do. If they take repeal off the table... We're willing to sit down with them and improve Obamacare. It's doing a good job, but there are places that it can be improved. No question Where, about What would you want to improve? Well, there's a whole lot of things. I'm not going to get into a whole list now. We've introduced legislation making drug prices lower, providing Medicare maybe for more people, uh, making sure the insurance companies don't get away with everything by giving more power to the insurance companies, more competition through a public option. There are all kinds of changes that we're willing to make to make Obamacare better, but they got to get off this kick of repeal, and I did not see uh, uh, Speaker Ryan say that. And Donald Trump's saying, ha-ha, everyone will now suffer. Well, only if he tries to make it worse, and that wouldn't be what a president is supposed to do. And even as this uh, legislation was going down, they were pulling uh, the actual bill. The, the president uh, phoned the Washington Post, Bob Costa over at the Washington Post, uh, and, and he said this, so let me put it up on the screen. As you know, I've been saying for years that the best thing is to let Obamacare explode and then go make a deal with the Democrats and have one unified deal, and they will come to us. We won't have to come to them after Obamacare explodes. Will you come to the president now and try to make what he calls a unified deal? Well, as I said, if they take repeal off the table, absolutely. They've tried to repeal it. They failed. If they keep trying to repeal it, we won't be able to do anything. So, of course, we'll come to them. And it's about time for the president to act like a president. 
not to make people suffer, make things worse by making Obamacare worse. Uh, it's, a, it's a good bill now. He can try to make it better. That's fine. But this idea, ha, 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 people will suffer. That is not what a president's supposed to be. We're not gloating that they failed. We're sad that uh, they won't work with us to improve Obamacare. What lessons, uh, Senator, will you take from this health care episode right now to apply to upcoming items on the president's legislative agenda? Because now he says the priority number one for the White House is tax cuts, tax reform. Okay. The number one lesson here is to do is to aim things at average families, working families. Uh, Obamacare had huge tax cuts on the very rich, and then they made everyone else pay more. And their main focus was to make... All right. That was was the response from the Democrats. Let's just get one more sound bite. On this, uh... okay, Chris Wallace destroys Paul Ryan for plan to crush seniors with health care costs. Check this out. The office, I don't have to tell you, came out this week with a pretty dramatic uh, forecast, and they said that 24 million fewer Americans will have health insurance in 10 years under your plan. You said that part of that is that this is what freedom looks like. Here you are. This isn't a government mandate. This is not the government makes you buy what we say you should buy, and therefore the government thinks you're all going to buy it. But, sir, is, is the major decrease in the number of people, according to the CBO, who will have health insurance, is it freedom, or is it that some people will no longer be able to afford health insurance under your plan? I want to show a specific case that the CBO Put up. Look at these numbers. In 10 years, the CBO said a 64-year-old with an income of $26,500 will pay $1,700 out of pocket under Obamacare for health insurance. Under your plan, the CBO says that same person will have to pay $14,600 because insurance companies can charge more and the tax credit that you're going to offer is smaller than the subsidy that Obamacare will offer. So, so what they're saying is this isn't freedom. This isn't people voluntarily deciding not to have health insurance. It's that your plan makes it unaffordable for people. So uh, there's three things I would say. Number one, what they basically say is people, Obamacare is not going to last. There's no way Obamacare could stick another two or three years, let alone 10 years. And so they're comparing an Obamacare plan that's mythical, that won't exist in 10 years, then they're saying, well, if, if people are going to buy what Obamacare is going to make them buy, uh, then they won't be able to afford it. Here's the point. We believe that we do need to add some additional assistance to people in those older cohorts. But the, the apples to oranges comparison that's happening here is we're not going to make people buy something that's so expensive that they can't afford that the market's not going to offer. And so where I dispute that comparison is it suggests that we're going to have the same kinds of plans being offered in 10 years that Obamacare would otherwise offer. But, sir, I mean, it just, won't just, because just to get to it two, is collapsing. If I may, no, but just let me, well, let let me if, get if back I may, I just want to get to two points. But I want to get to two points because no, under Obamacare. The older person, if, Chris, I'm, just real quick. I, yeah, go ahead. Now, let me just say, the, the older person, the person in their 50s and 60s, the, fifth, the person in their 50s and 60s does have additional health care costs than, say, a person in their 20s and 30s. The tax credit adjusts for that, but you're right in saying 
and we agree, we believe we should have even more assistance, and that's one of the things we're looking at for that person in their 50s and 60s because they experience higher health care costs. So you're going to change, your, critical you're going to change the plan as it we're was going written to, and the CBO analyzed it. That is among the things we're looking at doing, yes. And the point I would say is we're going to let people buy what they want to buy. We're going to have more plans being offered, more choice and competition. And this is before Tom Price does anything to deregulate the marketplace, to bring more competition and lower prices, which the CBO could not and did not analyze. So the CBO looked at a little piece of the issue when we know that the, the Secretary of HHS will help bring market freedom and regulatory relief to the health insurance markets to dramatically lower the price of plans for those 50- and 60-year-olds. But even with that, we think that we, we should be offering even more assistance than what the bill currently does. Can you say pipe dream? Okay. We're going to take a break, but before we do that, I don't, uh, some some years ago, there's a guy uh, named, a comedian named Von Meter, and he did an album called The First Family. It was, uh, this was Back in 1962, he does JFK, and they were talking, one of the things that they were talking about, uh, well, I want you to give a listen to this. Give a listen to uh, to this before we go before we before we go on break. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to you from a typical American home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Since January of 1960, this family of smiling and happy people have undergone a change. You might say they've been engaged in a new and different type of experiment. Sir, as head of this average family, what was this new experience undergone by you and the members of your household? Well, after uh, two years of brushing with the Crest toothpaste, our group... <laughs> Our group had 21% uh, fewer cavities with Crest. This shows a uh, rate of uh, economic growth, and therefore, it is not with uh, too much concern that I say a uh, raise from uh, 25 to 35 is not completely out of accord when compared with the uh, current uh, financial deficit on hand. Now, I trust that answers your question about your weekly allowance, Caroline. Uh, next, uh, next question. Yes, I should like to ask a question about... Would you wish, Diane, please? <laughs> yes, I should like to ask a question about... Would you identify yourself, please? <laughs> I'm your wife. <laughs> I should like to ask the following question. The place for No, speak English, Jackie. 
I noticed that you didn't touch your salad, either at dinner tonight or at dinner last night. Would you tell us why, please? Well, let me say this about that. Now, number one, in my opinion, the uh, fault does not lie as much with the salad as it does with the uh, dressing being used on the salad. Now, let me say that I have nothing against the dairy industry. However, I would... I would prefer it if in the, in the future we uh, stuck to coleslaw. Next, next question. Uh, yes, the uh, baby in the back row, uh, baby John. Well, I, uh, I believe I answered that, at, uh, that question at dinner last night. If you remember, here is what I said at that time. Oody wadi body bitty do goody wada woo. Yes, uh, next uh, question. Yes, I should like to ask a question regarding the daily bath. Identify yourself, please. I'm the house nurse. All right, uh, nurse. Uh, move ahead uh, with your question. Well, there seems to be some confusion as to the toys to be taken into the bathtub. Now, Caroline's toys are getting the... evidence for the literal truth of the Bible. 
For more information, visit our website at creationmoments.com and join us again for another Creation Moment, proclaiming evidence of God's truth. That's the sound of your classmate receiving an attachment of you posing in your underwear, your ex-boyfriend forwarding the picture to his friends, it being sent to your coach, and worst of all, your dad, all because of the time you posted those pictures on your profile. Anything you post online, anyone can see. So think before you post. For more information, visit www.cybertipline.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Justice, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Here's the opinions of Nation Talk are not necessarily views. I'll talk to you. Jam Radio Productions, StoryHead.com, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. Well, at least, at least Jordan, um, <laughs> it doesn't look like Donald Trump uh, was taught a lesson by the courts his first weekend. Uh, he tried to attack them, tried to intimidate them, and it only made them more angry. It looks like the other co-equal branch, uh, the legislative branch, is about to teach him a lesson today, threatening him yesterday. And the only thing that does is make your actually allies in this case even more committed against your cause. Well, Joe, I'm just really confused by what the political calculus was here, the way that the Trump White House has approached this. Because in the very beginning, the president seemed very lukewarm about this bill, and it just looks, you know, like this last-minute panic, and that he is suddenly throwing his weight behind it, going to the Hill, and for a bill that just doesn't, the votes just aren't there. So really setting himself up to be delivered a failure. And while, you know, I feel like President Trump will inevitably blame everyone else, I just don't understand what his point of wading into this almost was for a bill he doesn't really seem to support. He really has never been, uh, you know, for a more draconian health care system. And suddenly, uh, you know, the reckoning time has come, and it just doesn't look good for him. You know, it, it, Jim, Jim Vandehei, Elise really touches on a really important point. We've all known from the beginning Donald Trump is not ideological. He's been a Democrat his entire life. In 2011, he, he took on the birther uh, attack, uh, thought it might help him in the Republican primary. He became a Republican at the last minute after giving money to Schumer and everybody else, Democrats, in 2010. So ideology doesn't matter to him, but you would think – that he would look back at all the promises that he made on health care during the campaign and say, well, wait a second, I better not go with Paul Ryan's vision of health care reform. I better go with Donald Trump's vision of health care reform. But Elise is right. It's baffling that just at some point last week he said, okay, I'm going to embrace this bill, and we're going to try to shove this over the finish line when it breaks his promises to the, the voters in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and all these states that he needs to get reelected. I mean, this is what happens when you're making it up as you go. Like, had they had a regular transition, <laughs> had they thought about things, he would have thought, okay, I need tax reform, I need an infrastructure bill, a good economy gives me a great chance of reelection. Instead, because they didn't have a team in place, because they didn't have sort of an ideology hammered out and legislation to back it up, 
they're just doing it improvisationally. Everybody in the White House will tell you they're doing it improvisationally. So, yes, he's now backed into a bill that he doesn't love. Paul Ryan loves it. This is a much bigger moment for Paul Ryan than it is for Donald Trump. If he can't get the Ryan bill, this is his, this is his intellectual and ideological baby. If he can't get it through the House, he looks like a weak, defeated speaker. That's why I think he will get it through the House. They'll make it more conservative if they have to. They'll pull the bill, make it more conservative, get it through the House. And then all the right, headlines tomorrow, you read the last right, hour, tomorrow? It, it doesn't matter. They can pull it tomorrow. You can pull it whenever you want to pull it, or you can make it more conservative tonight. But ultimately, the trap there is sure. that every time you make it more conservative, the headline in the Boston Globe, Jan Brewer that you were talking about in Arizona, the Republican governor of, of Michigan, they're the ones, every time you make it more conservative, you make it harder to give coverage to people in those states because you're going to have to pull back on Medicaid. That's the trap, and that's the one I have no idea how they get out of. I see very clearly how they get it out of it in the House. I don't see how they get out of it in the House and the Senate and then get a signature. And Jim Jordan did not just there sound like a man whose mind was going to be changed by tomorrow, Joe. No. Yeah, no, really, and I've got to, I, I can't repeat this enough. The biggest trap for Republicans in the end in 2018 are passing this bill as is. That's why every, everybody sometimes gets so obsessed with, you know, succeeding in the task at hand. If they pass this bad bill, there will be a lot of Republicans that pay for this in 2018. Now, the question is, how would this affect the poor? I'm sad because me and my kids, I don't, I don't qualify for the Obama, Obama care insurance. And why is that? Why? Because my income is too, too low. You might be surprised by that. No, why? Even after Obamacare, people are too poor to get assistance paying for their health insurance. So I'm a suchest. How much, uh, How much do you make per hour? Uh, $13. And you work full-time? Full-time. I got two kids and me. They're twins. If they get in sick, I need to take to Reynosa, to, the, to Mexico. Mexico is not far from this border county, near the southern tip of Texas. Yeah, I was born in, in McAllen. Have you ever had health insurance? No. That's a common story here where less than half of non-senior adults have health insurance, the lowest rate in the country. Obamacare was supposed to help cover these people. I only earn 8000 a year this year. Why can I not get into Obama health care? Here's why. Only the poorest in the U.S. are covered by Medicaid. Many adults below the poverty line do not qualify. The Affordable Care Act tried to cover the people in the middle from the top down and the bottom up. Medicaid would be expanded to cover more of the poor, up to 138% of the poverty line. And those making above that amount would get subsidies to buy private health insurance on the new exchanges. But in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government could not force the states to expand Medicaid. 26 states still did. Texas did not. So while those above the poverty line can get subsidies, those that fall below have to pay the full price. I am sent to the marketplace to pay $488. That was the quote? Yes, yeah. 488 For who? From my husband and myself. I'm like... Raquel Calderon works as a home care provider and says she and her husband make about $15,000 a year, just a few hundred dollars below the poverty line for a family of two. 
She recently fell and dislocated her shoulder. She's paying out of pocket for health care and is having trouble finding a doctor to treat her. You work how many hours a week? 33 hours. So if you work 45, Five. you would qualify. I would qualify. <laughs> so those people are caught in between. They're just going to stay the same. Nothing they can do. The Kaiser Family Foundation estimates that more than one million people fall into this coverage gap in Texas alone. And there are almost five million across the country, not including undocumented immigrants. Most children living in poverty are covered by Medicaid, even in Texas. And the poverty line changes with the number of people in the household. This creates an environment where a single person working a low-wage job can be above the poverty line and qualify for subsidies while a mother can be working the same job, fall below the poverty line, and be stuck in the gap. If I don't have any children, maybe I can qualify for that woman care. But you have children. Yeah, I have children. Why won't states like Texas expand Medicaid? The federal government said it would pay for most of the expansion, but the state is afraid it will cost too much down the road. Some of our friends and allies in the conservative movement have folded in the face of federal bribery and mounting pressure from special interest groups. They tell us to take the money, but there is nothing free. There's nothing free that comes from Washington. So the uninsured will keep going to medical clinics in the area, funded privately and by taxpayers. We have a lot of chronic illnesses that we treat, uh, course, diabetes, um, heart disease, high blood pressure. Our patients are all very low income. They're what are identified or what we've identified as the working poor. The big misconception is the people who are here are undocumented, and that's the reason that they're uninsured. We have a lot of people at minimum wage, seven, eight, nine, ten bucks an hour. Uh, so they don't think about health insurance right away. But health insurance is on Blanca Hidalgo's mind. She says she's a legal resident who has lived in the States for 15 years and needs health insurance. Her income is too low to qualify for subsidies. Many of the uninsured in this county live in the Colonias unincorporated towns with rapidly expanding immigrant populations. It's getting quite big. Is there a population count? Oh, geez. We couldn't even get. We couldn't even get. Shirley Arnold runs a local community center with a medical clinic. We have basic medical needs. Health does not have borders. If we can reach out to the people that have tried to come over here to better their lives, how can they improve their lives if they can't improve their health? Undocumented immigrants living in this area were not interested in speaking with me on camera, but Jose Canchola would. How are you? He works in the fields, and his home burned down just a few months ago. I know that I need to see a doctor for I don't got the money. I don't got the insurance money. There's a lot of people that need help for you besides me. There's people here. When they don't have the insurance and they get so sick, they're basically told you should go home, and, and they end up, you know, just to go home and die. And it's it's a sad reality. You're rich. You're going to die. You ain't going to take nothing. I'm poor. You're going to die. You ain't going to take nothing with me. 
It's going to make our life that's it. This life is just trying to save for you. And now the story of a powerful new political ad being challenged by the fact checkers. It tells the story of a Michigan mother fighting leukemia. She lost the health insurance she liked because of Obamacare. And now she says the new plan is unaffordable. And I received the letter. My insurance was canceled because of Obamacare. Now the out-of-pocket costs are so high, it's unaffordable. If I do not receive my medication, I will die. I believe the president. I believe I could keep my health insurance plan. I feel lied to. It's heartbreaking for me. The woman you just saw, Julie Boonstra, is with us tonight. And we will speak with Julie in a moment. We want to start, though, with Robert Zimmerman. He's a veteran Democratic strategist, a member of the Democratic National Committee. And we reached out uh, to the target of that ad in Michigan. He, neither he nor anybody from his office would come on. So we appreciate you, Robert, for coming on. Good to be with you. To offer your thoughts on it. Um, so now the Washington Post fact checker has come out and given this ad to Pinocchios, suggesting that it's somewhat misleading. They don't say it's outright false. So they say it's somewhat misleading because they think that Julie's will wind up being about the same. My question to you is, is the ad, I'm going to talk to Julie about that in a minute, but for you, is that ad effective? No, absolutely not. Now, by the way, all of us can relate to Mrs. Boonstra and what she's gone through. My, I've had members of my family face life-threatening illnesses, so we can all relate to her anguish. But this is not about her. It's about the fact the ad is an amateurish fraud. Mrs. Boonstra, to her credit, pointed out that under Obamacare, her premiums have been cut from $1,100 a month to $571 But now our out-of-pocket costs are unpredictable, which she well, does actually, under like. Obamacare, this was pointed out actually by Glenn Kessler and, and, the, and the Washington Post when they gave this out to Pinocchio. Her, her costs are capped at $6,350. But they're unpredictable. Now, let, let, well, me, let me answer that charge. I'm going to ask her about that. But what she says is before, under her old plan, which she was told she could keep and she liked, which didn't turn out to be true, um, she was paying $1,100 a month, and she liked the certainty of that. And now, even though she may be paying less per month, she can get smacked with a $3,000 bill next month that she doesn't have in the bank. But the reality is the most she can lay out, the most she pays out of pocket is $6,350, and it's all covered. Now, the co-organization... Okay, I'm going to give you the floor. I'm going to give you the floor. But, but, but what she says to that is, but I didn't like that. I wanted the certainty of knowing my monthly payment. I don't want to be told, oh, just come up with a three grand, and if you get hit with another three grand the next month, then you'll be all paid up Megan, from here. She may not have that in the bank. Megan, the reality is, under this plan, and the Koch organization, to, to their own discredit, to their own deceit, doesn't mention in the ad that she has, she, she keeps the same doctor she presently has, and also she has an insurance plan under Blue Cross Blue Shield that gives her the same coverage she had previously. As far as the, expen as far as the expenses go, the, the point is everything after 6350 bucks is totally covered. And that's the, that's the critical point. That's the it's, maximum out-of-pocket she right. can and be Everything is covered 100%. But here's the point, Megan, that really counts. And this is why the ad doesn't work. Because the public can smell hypocrisy. Now, while the Coke organization is running an ad that is misleading and talking about Ms. Bush's health insurance, they're organizing campaigns around the country to block other people from getting health insurance who have conditions like Mrs. Booster. They're blocking expanding Medicaid coverage for, for citizens around the country okay. through lobbying and advertising okay. campaigns. That's critical. That's blocking working and indigent people from getting health care. Robert, good to see you. Thank you. 
We're going to take a break and come right back. This is Mason Talk. Can you tell if the surfaces in this kitchen are crawling with bacteria that could cause chronic arthritis? Listen. Can't, can you? You can't see it either. Wash surfaces, utensils, and hands frequently with soapy water while preparing food, especially when handling raw meats or eggs. Raw food may contain bacteria that can make you very sick or worse. One in six Americans will get sick from food poisoning this year, and roughly 3,000 will die. But you can keep your family safer by cleaning with soap and water as you go. Learn more about this and other important information. Check your steps at foodsafety.gov. That's foodsafety.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Hello, this is Rod Stewart from Rad. Your lifestyle is your business, but when you drive drunk, you become everybody's business. Don't drink and drive. Be smart, plan ahead, and choose a designated driver. Remember, music lives, and so should you. A public safety announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, Rad, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Close your eyes in Chicago. And you can hear the sound of zebra braying in Africa. Look hard out your window in D.C. And you can see the snow-covered peaks of the Andes. The world is that small. We are that connected. Please visit earthshare.org and learn how the world's leading environmental groups are working together. Earthshare. One environment. One simple way to care for it all. A public service message from Earthshare and the Ad Council. And we're back. It has just this week has been uh interesting in um the whole Obamacare thing. One side says it's it's good, once one person says it's gonna explode by itself, another person says just just redo it. But if you still, if you if you decide to do the Obamacare, redo it. We think it have another plan instead of scrap it, instead of scrapping it. Don't just scrap it. Find a replacement. But they're not willing to do that. So, I guess they're going to just let it, just let it go. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't get these people really, really. I really don't get them. Sometimes I wonder what the, I, I wonder about that thinking. I, I really do. Are they head on straight? Really, I don't know. It all remains to be seen on how uh, how everything goes. In the meantime, um, 
I guess you could just write to your congressman, write to your senator, ask him to to, to have another plan. This time, somewhat something that's affordable, especially for those who are who can't afford it. That's what I'm saying. Just find something to so it can be more affordable. But anyway, that's just my take on it. I want to thank everybody for for showing up. Thanks for everybody who called, who who, uh, popped in and popped out. (laughs) Of course, we'll be back on again next Sunday, as usual, for another Nation Talk. Here on Talk to Jam Radio. This is your Sunday evening for Nation Talk. The views and opinions of Nature Talk are not necessarily the views of TalkShoe, Generating Production, Sonia.com, and its sponsors. This has been Nature Talk, a public affairs program. It aired Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another Nature Talk here on TalkShoe and Jam Radio. Until then, God bless you. Good night, and have a wonderful week.
That last department looked more like a tool shed. That's because it was a tool shed, dear. I thought I'd show you the less than desirable apartments first because your credit is less than acceptable. But no worries, plenty of apartments. Let's try this one. It's a broom closet. Don't be silly, dear. It was a broom closet. Now it's apartment 3AA. Potential landlords can and will check your credit before giving you a lease. Don't let your credit put you in a bad place. Go to controlyourcredit.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Treasury and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.